Thanks, Mike Schrader. I appreciate that. All right, it's good to see you guys this week. We're here in the important section of Colossians because we're studying what it means to be a Christ-like wife, Christ-like husband. Next time, we're going to look at Christ-like families, how to parent. I mean, this is what God has called us to do. And it can be sensitive subjects here uh, as we're dealing with husbands and wives. And, you know, you're kind of sitting next to your wife and, and you hear something about being a godly husband and the wife kind of feels like her elbow becomes a conduit for the Holy Spirit and she just wants to nudge it over. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is take an honest look at the scriptures and find out what God has for us and what it means to be a Christ-like husband. Did you know that over 7,000 deaths a year and over 150, no, 1 million, sorry, 1 million injuries occur because people cannot read the prescriptions that the doctor writes for them. 7,000 deaths occur and over a million injuries occur each year because the doctor writes a prescription that the pharmacy can't read. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. If you have a disease, if you have something that you need to be treated, clarity in getting the prescription is key. Now, sadly, there is an epidemic in the church today on what it means to be a Christ-like husband. Now, the great thing for us is it is not unclear in God's word what we need to be doing. The prescription he's given for us, we can clearly read. All we need to do is make sure that we apply what God has given us as husbands and the epidemic will be cured. Let's take a look at Colossians 3, just verse 19 tonight, but we're going to be jumping all over the scriptures. Colossians 3, 19. In fact, I'm going to read 18, 19, 20, and 21 so we get the whole context, but we're going to focus on 19. Colossians 3, 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. God cares a lot about the family. I mean, think about this. He's gone from the point of explaining how we need to put off things and put on things, and then the first thing that he's going to get to after this is talk specifically about the family. This is something that God cares about. Now, last time we, we, we talked about submission, and I believe one of Scott's points, I think it was he wanted a finger point, Next time we'll get that for you, Scott, I promise. You wanted a finger point underneath number one, but it was understanding something like your role is ordained by God. And that's how I want you to put it down, number one, this way. Husbands, understand your role is ordained by God. Now, that is not laziness on my part, as you might think that it is. But when we approach the idea of a submission to a husband and a headship as the husband himself, we need to understand that this is not my idea, my opinion of what it is. It's not the church's idea. It's not the culture's idea. This is what God has laid out for man since the beginning of time. This is the way that God has designed it to work. This is not a result of any sort of sin or mistake. God did this for a purpose in assigning the role of men and women in specific things in marriage. Now, if you turn with me to Genesis 21, we're going to see this. Genesis 1, sorry. Genesis 1, 26. I want you to understand some things. God put this in place. It is a, it's a beautiful, wise, intricate system that God put together in order to bring him a lot of honor and glory. And that's where we're going to end up at the end of the night. But this is not an accident that it happened this way. God was intent when he did this. Genesis 1, you know it. Up until the verse 25, God has just started 
creating things, saying it and it's there, saying it and it's there. And then all of a sudden, when he gets to the apex or the crescendo of creation, he stops and he kind of deliberates and thinks because he wants to show what's about to happen is going to be something really, really big. And he says this in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God had great intentionality in designing both men and women to be created in the image of God. And as Scott pointed out so well last week, what that means is that men and women well, were equal in the sight of God in our essence. I am no more the image of God than my wife is. We've both been created equally in that sense. But what the scriptures are going to point out and how God designed marriage to work is that while we are equal essentially, functionally, we do different, different roles. Uh, if you want a theological term for it, it's called complementarianism, Okay. That's complement with an E in the middle, not an I. I hope you complement me with an I in the middle. This is complement, meaning complete, whole. And God designed marriage to be a complete, whole process, a complete, whole uh, work together with the husband fulfilling a function and the wife fulfilling a function. Now, how can I say that with such great confidence? Well, if, if all we had was Genesis 1 and God creating men and women both equal in the image of God, we might have an argument to say, well, what, what's the big difference? But then we have Genesis 2. And if you look at Genesis 2, it's kind of like you ever buy your favorite DVD set and you've watched it so many times and then you get the extras, like the behind the scenes type thing. That's what Genesis 2 really is for Genesis chapter 1. God has pulled back and he's shown this is the most important part of creation, man and woman. It's what took creation from good to very good. So I want you to know specifically why I did this. And in Genesis 2, you find out that God went to great lengths to show that men and women are really, really different. First off, you can just mark this down to, to point it out. Uh, they're different because God created them in a different order. You might think, well, hey, if men and women are supposed to have the same function, they can both be the leaders in the family, God might create them at the same time in the same way. But we notice in, in Genesis 2, it's God creating the man first. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much, but in the ancient Near East, that was a huge deal. We even remember that from Colossians 1. Remember, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that just chron chronologically speaking that he's the firstborn. It's talking about the prominence, the importance that Christ has as being the firstborn, the most important of all creation. When you create first, or you have the firstborn in the Old Testament, they were the ones who received the, the, the blessing. They were the ones who received the inheritance. You create something first, that's a big deal in the Bible. And he creates the woman differently than he does the man, right? Man is formed out of the dust. The woman's taken from man. But second, functionally, you notice that they, they operate different. If you look at Genesis 2.15, it says this, Then the Lord God took the man who he already created, and he put him in the garden, and he told them to work it and to keep it. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God, God gives that command to Adam. Where's Eve? Not created at this point in time. Uh, fast forward to Genesis 3. Who's the first person to eat the fruit, Adam or Eve? 
Eve. Eve's the first person. Where does God come looking for the responsibility when he's looking for Adam and Eve? Who does he call for? Adam. Because Adam, as the leader, had the responsibility of passing on the message to those who were underneath him. That is why in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, in Adam all have sinned. Not in Eve all have sinned, but in Adam because he's the head, the representative, the leader. Finally, we, we see that Eve is, as, as Scott pointed out last week, the helper, okay? Now that doesn't, that's not a demeaning role. It's a role that God actually, like Scott pointed out last time, it's a role that actually God is able to fulfill sometimes to the Israelites and more. But when you think about that, you help someone, you are taking on a, a, a role of a servant in that sense. You are trying to help somebody else with, with their goals and their aims. Like even if I were to sit down and I were to help Miles with his ABCs, I am, I'm trying to come alongside to help him do something, not promote my own agenda at that point in time. It's a helper. So she was created specifically to help him. And what you find out that with Jesus and with Paul in the New Testament, they go back to this chapter over and over again to show this is God's design for marriage. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we're working for. This is designed for a purpose. And as we're going to see, it's designed to point the, the, the spotlight, put the emphasis on God's love and the glory of God in Christ Jesus as he loves the church. That's why God cares so much about this. You can just write these down. We don't have time to turn there. Matthew 19, I think it's 6 and 7. Jesus uses the argument, hey, at the beginning, this is the way God created it. That's the way marriage should be. It's uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, where Paul's making the argument from creation when, with regards to leadership in the church. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, that Paul makes the argument, woman was created for man, not man created for woman. They're all going back to this. This is the ideal. This is what we're shooting for. And God has so laid the headship, the leadership on the man. Now, why, do I, why would I you know, go to so much length to talk about this? Because this is what guys need to understand. Complementarism um, gets a bad rap because guys think that they're so great and so awesome and abuse the role that God has given them because they think they've done something to earn it or they think they've done something to deserve it, or they feel entitled to this idea of being the leader. And if you have that sort of pride, or you have that sort of thought process, there's no way you can do what God has designed you to do, which is to humbly and sacrificially lead your family. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4.7 says this, just talking to the Corinthians in general about their salvation and gifts that God has given them. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why would you boast as if you didn't receive it? The principle that you as a man need to take from that is to think, I don't have this role of, of head, of, of leader in the family because my, my job application was the best. It, it wasn't this because I, I earned this position. I am solely in this position because God in his grace, mercy, wisdom, love, and sovereignty put me in this position. And once I understand that, I realize I'm a steward of what God is asking me to do. I'm not the authority, okay? That's something you really need to think about as a man. You have a derived authority. It is not your own inherent authority. It is not because you are so good. It is not because you are the, the greatest person ever created on this earth. It is because simply that God wanted to put this design 
so he could showcase his love to the world. You need to think in terms of this. You are not the owner of the company, okay? You could consider yourself the president, but guess what? The president of a company can be fired. If the owner doesn't like him, he can get rid of him. Too often, as husbands, we think we're the owner, and we get really upset with our employees because they're not doing what we want them to do. Well, that is not your authority. You are not the owner. Psalm 24.1, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There is nothing that you have that you own. It is given to you by God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So until you adopt that mentality, hey, I am not the owner. God's the owner. You are not going to be able to live out functionally what God is asking you to do. And you will make the mistake that our passage says in Colossians 3.19 by becoming very harsh with your wife. Because you will think, hey, my authority is not being followed when you should be thinking, wait, God's authority is not being followed. You can't derive it from your own authority. It must be God's authority. You'll, you'll stop being harsh with your wife when you think that way. You will be harsh with your wife when she doesn't talk to you the way you want her to or she doesn't do things the exact way that you expect her to. If I take it to Scripture and I look at what God wants me to do, well, now it's a different attitude that I'm going to have, and I'm going I'm to help her, I'm going to guide her, I'm going to lead her. But you will be harsh with her the way that Paul tells you you cannot be if you think you're the owner of the company. Stop thinking that way. You are a steward of God's authority. You are a, a, a steward of his ownership. And until you think that way, you will never do what God is asking you to do. Don't, don't boast. Don't think, this is me. I'm entitled to this. Because we, 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 we live in entitled times. Kids are entitled, and they act like spoiled brats, right? Kids think, I deserve this. Sadly, husbands think, I deserve something. And really, I'll sit in the counseling office, and I'll see a grown man act like a, like a child because he's not getting his way. Or what's even worse in our passage, they will get really harsh with their wife, abusive words, sometimes physical stuff, the, the cowardly way to step up and try to take what is not your own. Let me tell you, ladies, I, I know it hurts when that happens, but God's not sitting idly by. Do not be deceived, it says in uh, Galatians 6-7. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And if, if you are reaping harshness into the ground of your marriage, you are going to reap corruption and destruction one day. God's asking for you to reap what the first part of this thing is, 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 is to sow into the ground love, right? Husbands, love your wives. That's exactly what we're called to do. If I understand that God, the authority, my owner, is telling me that to my employees, I need to show love, well, that's what I'm sowing into the ground. And I'm going to reap benefits from that, blessings from that, peace and safety from that. But I think we need to talk about love for a moment just so we understand what's going on. Our culture will talk about love with feelings and emotions. What's, is, it, is it Tina Turner? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second hand? No, that's not what it is, okay? Because the Bible here, this is a command, okay? We have a command here. So if something's commanded, I know it's within my capabilities to do this. Can you really control your emotions? Emotions are what you do when you react to somebody doing something to you or something you've done. You, can't, you don't control your emotions. I can't say, be happy, be sad, be angry. Those are what happen when, when there's a reaction to something you've done. So love here, if it's something that we can do, we know is very 
active, and that's the way we need to think. Husbands, think this way, okay? Stop thinking conditional love and start thinking covenantal love. See, you think conditional love, which is if my wife does the five things I've asked her to do, I will then do what, the, what she wants me to do. But until then, I can't love that way. That is conditional love, and that's never going to get you anywhere. In fact, what you promised before God and other people was a covenantal love, which means no matter what that person does, I'm going to start to love them the way that God has asked me to do. This is, this is covenantal love. You guys understand that those, the, the feeling of joy, the feeling of satisfaction, that can be a gift that you receive from God when you've done what he's asked you to do. That can be a gift that God gives you, but you treat it like a God, which dictates what you do. And if I don't feel like loving my wife or I don't feel like doing this, then I'm not going to do that. That's worshiping another God other than God of the universe. And God hates idolatry. He jealously yearns for your spirit, James 4 says. He doesn't want you to do it. So now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what I am going to do today is not based on the way that I feel. It's not based on the circumstances that I'm in. It's based on the simple fact that I've covenanted before God and he's put me in this role to love these other people, my wife, my kids, more than I love myself. And this is the way that we need to start thinking. Here's a great passage on love. You can just write it down. 1 John 4, 7 to 11. 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Beloved, let us love one another. Whoever loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested to us that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In that we hear God didn't wait till we deserved his love, he sent his love in his son. So if we are to love the way that Christ loves the church and the way that God loves us, the way that the passage is commanded, it's not waiting, like Pastor Mike said a few weeks ago, for the reciprocating type of affection. It's the initiating type of affection. That's what you've got to be doing. It's, initi- it's initiating what God is calling you to do because you're obligated to do that. And that obligation is not a bad thing. You ought to. You owe it to God to love that way because that's the way he loved you. There's a great hymn. Uh, it's talking about God's love, and at the end of it, it says, uh, Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. That's what God's love does for us because he was so sacrificial, giving it to us when we deserved it the least. Now we ought to, we are demanded, we are commanded to go out and love that way. It's divinely ordained by God that we as husbands should be doing this covenantally and not conditionally. That's the way we need to start thinking, okay? Now, I hope you will adopt that. I hope you will take the commands that Paul says, and I will love my wife, and I will not be harsh with her. Harshness comes from pride. Love comes from humility, and that's what we need to be seeking. That's what we need to be seeking. But if we could take that, if, if you agree with that idea, okay, what I want to get you to do, number two, is I want to get you to invest yourself into your family. Husbands, I want you to invest yourself into your family. If you believe what I just said and you agree that's the teaching on the Bible and you understand that this is ordained by God, I need you to invest 
everything that you have into your family because the rewards that you will reap are unimaginable if you will just do what God has asked you to do. It will be costly. Don't misunderstand me. It will cost you great sacrifice. But what investment that provides a great reward isn't a great cost. There is always a great cost involved. But with God, we have the guarantee that if you lose your life for my sake, guess what? You will gain it. There is a guarantee because we have a faithful God on the other side. So I need you to invest yourself into your family, okay? And by doing that, I mean really investing yourself into loving your wife. Here's the way 1 Peter 3, 7 says it. Uh, you're going to live with your wife in an understanding way, okay? You want to you know your wife. You want to live with her according to knowledge so well. You want to ask her questions, find out how she reacts to things, understand her perspective so that you can minister to her better. It was, I, I read this in a, in a book recently. It was said that t- Thomas Edison pr- proposed to his second wife through Morse code, okay? After I read that, I thought, how did he propose to his third wife? Because there's no way that relationship lasted, right? You propose to your wife during Morse code, that's not going to go along, okay? But he was living with his wife or his future wife in, in his own way. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. This is my way. I'm Thomas Edison. I'm a great inventor. This is what I'm going to do. That's not what a woman wants. You have no idea what a woman wants. If you're going to imagine proposing through text message today, I guarantee you. Did anybody do that in here? Nobody proposed during text message, did they? Okay, good. Well, no one's willing to raise their hand at this point in time. You want to live with her according to what, what would she like? You know, this, this is of no, this is not to try to post myself because they say you should never uh, give yourself as the hero of the lecture, but I just thought of this, okay? Last week, everyone kept saying, hey, put Andrea up on stage. Put that table up on stage. She'd love it. And I go, no, she wouldn't. You don't know Andrea. You, you don't know that she wouldn't like that. You got to know your wife in that sense. So when other people are telling you what she wants, no. You got to know what your wife wants. Do you understand that? Have you invested yourself in that? You think of investments you make now. You study the company. You check out its trajectories. You're understanding what's going on in the future, who's the CEO. You know everything about that. Are you investing yourself into your wife? Do you understand what's going on in her life? Are you, are you growing her? Uh, a passage we'll look at it in a moment. Ephesians 5. Are you washing her in the water of the word? Are you guys growing in prayer together? I mean, these are the types of things that we need to be doing. But then as the husband, as the leader, you're going to be doing this in the family ultimately to set an example. So here's five ways that I think you need to be the leader in your family. Just write these down real quick. Five ways. You need to be the leader. Set the example in Bible study, okay? Now, don't hear me say that you need to know more than your wife. That's not what I said. You need to set the example, okay? So if your wife knows more about the Bible than you, I'm not saying you're in sin necessarily. But you better be the one who's up early, You better be the one trying to gain more knowledge. You better be the one setting the pace, setting the example in the family. Same with prayer, okay? Now, prayer is something that you should be leading in. You should be covering your family in prayer. You should be praying specifically for your wife. You should be praying with your wife. You should be praying with your kids if you have them, okay? Bible and prayer, three, okay? Bible, prayer, service to the church. How hypocritical would it be for you to expect your wife to serve at the church and do what God's asked her to do if you're not doing it yourself. So if you can't, I think Pastor Mike calls it your ministry post. If you can't look at the church and say, this is where I'm serving, this is where I'm growing God's kingdom, this is where, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, I am uh, striving to excel in my spiritual gift. If you don't have that, 
how, how are you the leader in your family? You're not. Your wife might be serving more than you, and that's going to put you to shame. So you've got to be the leader in service to the church. Number four, fellowship. Genuine Christian fellowship, which for us would include accountability. Guys, you want to talk about being a leader, and you want your wife to trust you? Obviously, it's going to come, we'll talk about a moment in decision-making, and there's a lot of different ways that, you know, you can be truthful and honest with her. But if you have a group of men speaking into your life who care about you and the well-being of your family and the glory of God, that is going to put a lot of comfort in your wife's mind as you make decisions. If you take a look at your track record of fellowship and accountability attendance over the last year, and it's spotty as a man, I don't think you understand the responsibility that you have over your family. Understand it's a sacrifice to do. I understand you're going to have to give up time, but it's the cost of being the leader. It's the cost of being the head. It's the cost of being what God has told you to do. Do you have that? Are you meeting with these guys regularly? Are you following up with one another? You need it as a leader to be able to do that. Fifth, you need to be the leader in decision-making. This is a tough one, okay? Guys run from decision-making because when you make a decision, you are now accountable for it. If it succeeds, great, you get some, some praise. If it doesn't, you get all the blame. So guys want to run from that. I don't want any of the blame. I'm not willing to risk this. But you need to make decisions. Nothing will frustrate a wife who is trying to do what God has called her to do, to submit to you, and you are not saying anything. How can she practically know if she is fulfilling her role if you're not laying anything out there? You've got to make decisions, and you've got to point the family in the right direction. Okay? If I could give you some help, just practically, okay? There's a way that I make decisions. You don't have to adopt this, but if you're not good at making decisions at all, I can help you kind of with this. Jeremiah, do we have that slide? You don't talk about doctors having bad handwriting. This is my handwriting, okay? It's on an iPad with a note thing. Uh, Jeremiah actually thought this was Miles who did this earlier. He goes, oh, Miles did a great job. He's learning to write. That's no joke, okay? <laughs> Spelling is probably really bad. Okay, there's no spell check in the Moleskin app, so things could be spelled wrong. But what I need you to do is attach something to your decisions to give them direction. Okay? So for any Christian, I got verses down there, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Romans 11.36, 2 Corinthians 5.9. This says that we need to be pleasing to God and give him glory in all things. Okay? That is the drive of every Christian, but especially a Christian man. So I understand that as a leader, if I'm making decisions, if I'm driving the family, I need to say, okay, God's glory is my ultimate goal. In my life, for me specifically, that means I need to be a great pastor, a great husband, and a great dad because those are the three stewardships that my owner has entrusted to me right now. So now as I make decisions, as I set priorities, as I move the family along, I'm filtering everything through these three, three categories into the final funnel of God's honor and glory. This is going to help you with your recreation time, okay? A lot of times we, we think, okay, well, it's the weekend. <laughs> I, I've worked hard all week. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to check out. I'm going to watch some football. I'm going to go play golf with my buddies. I'm going to do this, that. Okay, not saying you can't do any of those things, but have you ultimately thought, is this the wisest thing for me to be doing to give God glory, to take care of my family? Is this what I want to do? If you can show your wife, hey, you know what? Fellowshipping with Christians, guys, uh, getting some exercise, this is a good thing. I'm doing this so that I might be in better shape to be a better husband and father. That's going to make her feel better than, honey, see ya, take care of the kids, I'm going to go play some 
basketball and pull a muscle because I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, okay? It's exactly what you need to be thinking. Career paths, okay? Can I be a great husband and a great dad if they're asking me to work more and more hours at work? You gotta ask yourself that question. It's great to be a better provider, but is that stealing me away from having influence in my wife's life, in my kid's life, in the church life? Well, if you don't have God's glory as your ultimate goal and you're now the owner, you're the boss, you're going to make that decision based solely on money. What does Jesus say? You can't love two masters. You'll be devoted to one and you'll hate the other one. This one says, God's glory is my ultimate thing. That's how I'm going to start to make every single decision. And if you have men holding you accountable, if you have God's glory as your ultimate goal, you're going to help your wife out a whole bunch when she's trying to submit to you and you're making tough decisions because she knows it's not about you and promoting your system and your glory, but it's about caring for the family and honoring God in all that you do. You've got to be thinking this way, okay? Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We can't really talk about husbands without visiting the, the, the clearest passage in all of this. Like our passage in Colossians 3, it's told us that we, too, we are to love our lives, but it gets specific here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5.25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, as they love their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Notice this, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose of your marriage right now, if you do not understand this, is that it pictures Christ's love for the church. And whatever actions you do, husband, better be to throw a, a spotlight, highlight, underline, emphasize Christ's love for the church. And when you do that, you will be accomplishing the God-ordained role that he has laid out for you. It is not because you are so good, but because he is so gracious that he lays that out. And he will enable you to do that when you depend on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this look at the scriptures. And I pray that we would understand that this marriage, this life is not really about promoting us. It's about promoting you. And, and Father, I hope the husbands in the room feel the burden of leading their families, understanding, God, that is not them that needs to receive the praise, not them that needs to receive the attention, but your honor and glory. And as good stewards being entrusted with something, I pray that we would think about how we can do this according to your will and for your glory. Please, God, give the men in this room that focus so that we might have strong, healthy marriages that picture the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.